when I was in high school a few years ago, <laughs> yes, we had high school and it was not a one-room schoolhouse. Like everyone else, I bought a senior ring. As I recall, it was about a hundred bucks, not that much today, I know, but then, 40 years ago, as a senior in high school, it was a lot of money. Well, that, the very weekend after we got them, a bunch of us decided to go to Six Flags um, over Georgia in Atlanta. We, we drove. There were no horses and buggies. And there was a city and there was a Six Flags. Uh, on, the, on the log ride, nice and wet, my uh, less than week old $100 ring slipped off my finger into the murky depths. It just drifted away, never to be recovered, at least not by me. In fact, I'm hoping that someone will listen to this podcast <laughs> and return my Woodmont High School ring. Give it back. <laughs> the word for drift away in the Greek is that exactly the word used in our text today in our continuing study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. It was used of a ring slipping off a finger or a boat veering off course or drifting from its moorings, slipping into a swift current and being swept away, never to be recovered. You see, it is a dangerous thing to pay no attention to something of value, to protect it, to preserve it, to pursue it. As we have seen, the author of Hebrews was writing to a group of Christians who were in danger of drifting from the faith, returning to their old way of life, their old religion, which for them was Judaism. And, and so he writes both to warn and to encourage them to not drift, to, to not fall away, to not quit, but to remain faithful, committed, to, to, to persevere. We've talked about some of the things that they faced causing them to drift, apathy, indifference, neglect, some of the things that they faced causing them to fall away, to quit, persecution, opposition, impending martyrdom under the Neronian persecutions. And so they no doubt, because of these challenges, were asking the question that perhaps some of you have today, does this Christianity thing even work. At least Judaism uh, was a legal religion and within the bounds of propriety and acceptability. And, and so some were considering quitting and, and returning. Others already had. So here's my questions for, for us today. Is Christianity working for you. And, and, and how do we define working? And that is, what are the things that makes Christianity successful? Is it when we get what we want or when He does? And what is it that we want that makes it all work? 
Is it enough that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to the God of the universe, to rescue us from the eternal torments of hell, and to give us life everlasting in the glorious presence of God, or do we need more? And what is the more that we need? How does our culture, and I'm talking American Christianity, define a successful faith that works? How about these? When God answers all my prayers, which translates to when God gives me what I want right now. When I'm healthy, no, no, no sickness. When I'm wealthy, no f- financial stress. In fact, when I have the money I want to buy everything I want. When I'm prosperous, no sorrow, no pain. When I face no opposition or ridicule or persecution, when I am accepted and respected by the world around me, that's successful. Which of those things is promised through the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world? Well, I have lots of questions because there is, frankly, a lot of flabby, unbiblical teaching out there because there are many who think that Christianity is ultimately about making me happy, about getting me everything that I need and even what I want, about, about removing all of the struggles and trials and challenges of life. That's what works. And some of you came to faith in Christ and you found out that didn't work. So what now? The author of Hebrews addresses these issues head on. And, and his teaching is never, to be clear, his teaching is never change your attitude, believe more, have more faith, and you'll get what you want. Everything's going to be all right. Well, he, he does say that, but the promise is not for this life. We arrived this morning at the first of five, and I need to warn you, very severe warnings in the book. His warning, don't drift. Don't let something eternally valuable drift away, because how will we escape? Escape what? Judgment. If we neglect so great a salvation. Read the text with me, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, firm, affirmed, confirmed, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, retribution, punishment, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. 
So, what, what, are, what are you? What are you facing this morning? What have you faced recently? What have you faced in your life that has caused you to question the success of the Christian life? You know, does Christianity really work? Is it, is it worth it? That has caused you to question the faithfulness of God. That has prompted you to consider quitting the whole thing. I want you to listen very carefully today. At the end of our service, we will have a time of prayer specifically for you. To not drift, to not quit, to not fall away, to surrender. Understanding that God will give you all that you need by His powerful grace to face the inevitable, difficult challenges of life that will likely remain. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't like that. That's, that's not what I signed up for. Our outline will go like this. We're going to see encouragement followed by warning. And we remember that the author switches back and forth very quickly. Encouragement, warning. And, and then proof. Listen, proof that it is real. And that at the end of it all, it's worth it. Starting with this encouragement, verse 1, he starts with, for this reason, for what reason? Well, chapter 1. For, for this reason, because Jesus is infinitely superior to the angels. For, for these reasons, that he is the very Son of God. In fact, he's worshipped by the angels. He's sovereign, eternal, creator and ruler. He's seated at God's right hand. For this reason, do you need more? We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. What is it that they had heard that we have heard? The gospel of Jesus and all that it represents, the incarnation, the, His perfect life, His, his teaching and his, and his miracles, His death, burial, and resurrection, and, and His exaltation uh, at the Father's right hand after He had made purification for sins. We must, we, brothers and sisters, we must pay closer attention. Pay attention so that you don't drift. You see, this idea of drifting carries with it the idea of unnoticed slipping away because of inattention, lethargy, indifference, apathy, inactivity, boredom. <laughs> Don't do it. Pay, pay careful attention to, to that which is of supreme, of, of highest value. He's just spent the entire first chapter talking about the high supreme value of Christ. In the past, God's revelation uh, came through the, the, through the prophets. That was good. It was, it was true. It was indeed glorious. But, but it was also, we saw, incomplete and, 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 and partial and, in fact, unfulfilled. But, but now God's revelation has come. Can you believe it? Through his very son, complete, fulfilled, and most glorious. And now the author will spend the rest of the book demonstrating that, that, that since the old covenant came by angels, was mediated by angels, while it was good, it was in fact inferior to the new covenant. 
which was mediated by Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to it and all that it represents, lest, lest we drift away. I know, I know some of you right now are thinking, but I, did we just sing, He Will Hold Me Fast? Did, I, I thought we didn't believe you could. Don't drift away. Again, this drifting speaks of slipping away for, again, the example of a boat losing its mooring, unsuspecting, unnoticed by anyone on board, and before you know it, the boat drifts into a dangerous current and is swept away with disastrous effect, pounded into a rocky surf or plunging over a steep, deadly waterfall. Please understand, I want you to understand, this drifting was not intentional. It was not like you woke up one morning, the day before you were on fire for Christ, His gospel, His word, His church, His kingdom, but then this is a new day, and you make a conscious decision to deny and desert the faith. I don't believe what I believed yesterday. No, no, no. This was unintentional drifting and almost imperceptible, unnoticeable slipping you occasionally stop reading. It's always amazing to me. Then people come to my office and say, my spiritual life sucks. And I say, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. But my spiritual life is bad. And I say, well, are, are you reading the Bible? And they say, well, no, I'm not doing that. Stop praying most of the time. Stop worshiping. Stop gathering with the church. Other things, things of this life, other people, people of this world, grab your attention, and before you know it, the, day, the days slip into weeks and the weeks and the months, and before you know it, you are cold, indifferent, and dead to the things of faith. I said it a couple of weeks ago, we all know people who used to be here who are no longer. Why? It brings us to this severe warning in verses 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels, now let me stop there and explain something. I've mentioned this idea that the old covenant was mediated or declared through the angels. To be honest, that idea is not clearly seen in the Old Testament. In fact, it seems the law was given by God to Moses who spoke with him face to face as a man speaks with a man. Remember that? But Deuteronomy 32, 33 implies it. Which was the blessing that Moses um, gave when he was preparing the people to go into the land of promise and he's getting ready to leave. He, that is Moses, said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. And at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually says that at the right hand there were angels. And remember the author used the Greek um, Old Testament. Obviously, the Holy One is speaking of angels, and this idea developed that, that, that God was accompanied by angels in the giving of the Old Covenant. In fact, that it was mediated by angels, so that later, by Jesus' time, this was a commonly held belief, and since we find it, frankly, in the New Testament, it's a true belief. When Jesus, I mean, excuse me, when Stephen gave his speech before he was stoned, and he said in Acts chapter 7, this is the one, again, Moses, who was 
in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Then later, he says in verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Even Paul says in Galatians 3, why the law then? Well, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. So again, this idea that the old covenant came or was mediated or ordained through angels was well understood then. The author of Hebrews picks up this idea, this, the, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. The, the word could be translated binding. It's a legal term. You were, you were legally bound by the provisions of the laws of the old covenant. And as a result, every transgression, every disobedience to that binding law resulted in just in a just penalty, or, or there was just punishment or retribution for breaking God's law. You read through the Old Testament, you find every time they stepped that line, they got Peg, Korah, Nathan, uh, Abayu, all those guys. I mean, God would just nail them for breaking the law. By the way, that's still true today. When we see in the New Testament that Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Covenant and brought the New Covenant, that does not mean that He abrogated or set aside the Old Covenant. Oh, no, 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 no. The the, the moral law is still the moral law and is frankly still binding. For example, it is still wrong to have gods before the true and the living God. It is still wrong to make graven images to represent God. It is still wrong to misuse his name. And I know we think of the big one, you know, taking his name in vain. But, but, but actually, every time you say, oh, my Lord, or oh, God, you are taking it, you're misusing his name. It is still um, wrong to dishonor your parents, to murder to commit adultery, to bear false witness. That means to lie, to steal, to covet, etc. The moral law is still binding and there will still be a just retribution doled out. Jesus did not do away with um, the law. He fulfilled it, meaning he kept it perfectly for us and died for us because, frankly, we could not keep the law. If I had the time, I would take all 10 commandments this morning, all 10 of them, and prove how everybody sitting in this room has broken all 10 of them. Oh, no, no, I've never committed. Yes, you have. You've committed adultery. I've never committed murder. Yes, you have. Jesus said you did. Every time that you lusted or every time you were angry guilty. We're guilty. But but, but he died in our place and took our penalty such that the penalty penalty to be paid for our law-breaking, which had to be paid, has been paid in full for those who believe. My point is this, there is still a penalty for breaking God's law. And and if that proved reliable and unalterable when spoken by angels, how much more, and the author is arguing from the lesser to the greater, a common practice then, how much more will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus, through the new covenant, has provided a way to escape the just punishment for breaking God's law. If we neglect that way of salvation, how will we possibly escape? And the implied expected answer is there is no way to escape. There there is no other way. This is his point. There is no escaping certain judgment outside of Christ. If that is true, why would you leave? 
Why would you drift? Why would you not pay attention? You will be swept away into a dangerous, damnable, destructive current with no hope of return. How shall we escape if we neglect? <laughs> that word for neglect is found in Matthew 22. There, Jesus gives a parable, the parable of the marriage feast. The king gives a wedding feast for his son, sends slaves out to invite people, saying, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened livestock are all, livestock are all butchered, sorry, vegetarians, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everybody's invited. But, but notice verse 5, but they paid no attention. That's the word. They neglected the invitation. Why? Well, they, they, they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. What is it for people today? Because you see, the call of this world and its enticements were more important than the invitation of the king. He invites you. But his call was neglected, ignored, refused. And so this warning comes. You, no doubt, have loved ones who have drifted, who have deserted, denied. It is most appropriate to love them, to care for them, to be gentle with them, accepting them, not for their actions, their behaviors, but for their ongoing relationship with you. I understand that. I get that. I support that. I'm doing the same thing with loved ones in my family who have walked away. But perhaps, perhaps, listen carefully, as in this text, there are times to warn them of pending judgment. Perhaps the most loving thing that you can do is to cry out to them, seeking to snatch them from a certain inescapable sentence of eternal punishment. Well, I wouldn't want to offend Imagine with me being on the side of a river. Let's say it's the Niagara River. And there on a party boat, moored to a pier, is your family. And they're having a party. And you notice to your horror that the boat becomes unmoored and begins, goes out into the current, is being swept away. Would you sit there and go, well, I don't want to interrupt their party. I don't want to awaken them from their slumber. I would not want them to be offended. No. You would scream from the shore, warning of impending judgment to come. You would do everything that you could possibly do to warn them. That's the point. How will we escape? We won't. Bringing us to our third point, the proof of this great salvation which must not at all costs be neglected, verses 3 and 4. There are three ways in which the gospel was proven or affirmed. First, through the Lord Jesus. Secondly, through those who heard, likely the apostles. And then third, through God Himself. Notice, the gospel of salvation was first spoken through the Lord. 
That's Jesus. We remember Mark chapter 1. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. I love this. This is what Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the gospel of God, saying, here's the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. It is right to call people to repentance. Turn from your sin. It's destructive. And believe in the gospel of God. Of course, the gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what He came to do. When the author says this salvation was first spoken through the Lord, it's probably referring to all that Jesus did, again, from His incarnation, through His perfect life, His teaching, His miracles, through His death, burial, and resurrection, to include His exaltation at the Father's right hand. This salvation has been accomplished through Jesus and the new covenant He came to bring, and it has been perfectly and fully revealed to us, listen, so that we are without excuse. I know everybody wants to know, what about the, let's stop worrying about those who have never heard, but you understand what I'm saying now. No, let's go tell them, but let's stop worrying. You've heard. Second, the message of salvation was confirmed to us by those who heard. Uh, by the way, this is the verse in Hebrews that makes it clear that Paul did not write the book. He would never have said the message of salvation was communicated to him by those who heard. In fact, he makes a big deal of saying just the opposite in Galatians, um, that he did not hear the gospel from others but from Jesus himself. He, he, he used this to substantiate his apostleship. We see in Galatians 1, for example, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to, to, to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Paul says the message was not given to him by another. He was not taught it. He received it directly from Jesus. But, but he and others who received it directly from the Lord, that is, they, they were eyewitnesses of his teaching and his miracles to include his death and resurrection, they've confirmed the message. We remember, for example, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are saved if... What do you mean if? This is troubling. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Sounds like he agrees with the author of Hebrews. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, buried, raised again the third day according to the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now. He means go ask them. Some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one in timely born, he appeared to me. Again, verse 9, that means I'm an apostle. Notice again how Paul said Jesus appeared to him. But, but, but the point is, there were plenty of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, Brothers and sisters, there were 500 at one time. This confirmed the truth of the gospel, which, by the way, is solid proof of its credibility and reliability. People often, I hear people say this to me all the time, I believe it if I see it. Listen, there were plenty who saw it, and they have confirmed the truth to us through God's very word, that's all you'll get. But it's enough to believe. 
not only the Lord Jesus, not only those who saw it with their own eyes and proclaimed it, but third, it was testified as true and faithful and reliable by God the Father himself. He does it in two ways. First, by signs, wonders, various miracles. Certainly, the greatest of these was the resurrection of Jesus from the, the resurrection. <laughs> Remember from last week, Romans chapter 1. Uh, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And there were lots of witnesses. There can be no denying it. But there was more. Signs are supernatural events or happenings which point to something else, what they called signs. They point to something else. They are not the end. They point to the end, namely to authenticate the message. God gave these signs so that you would know that the message is true. Wonders speak of God's amazing supernatural acts, which again point to the wonders of God. Miracles could be translated supernatural power. Again, not pointing to the event itself. God doesn't just throw around miracles just to throw around miracles, but, 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 but so that you would know the supernatural God behind the event. All of these together authenticate the message of salvation as true and reliable, trustworthy. Listen to me very carefully. You can't believe it. It's true. Pay attention to it. That's what he's saying. Not only did God testify and authenticate the message by supernatural acts done primarily by Jesus and the apostles, but also through us who believe now. How? By the gifts of the Spirit given um, according to His will. Now, th- this could be speaking of the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us by which He testifies that we are children of God. It could be that. Or it could be speaking about spiritual gifts given by the Spirit. Most agree that it's the latter, which is why it's translated that way in the New Testament or, or in Hebrews. Both Paul and Peter talk about spiritual gifts given to believers for the purpose of edifying or building up the church. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, uh, for example, to include apostleship and prophecy and teaching and miracles and healing and service and helps and administration. Tongues, that's the big one. Interpretation of tongues, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, etc., etc. Now, I know that spiritual gifts are a hot button in the church today as there are differences of opinion as to their viability today, as well as the rather significant abuse of such gifts in many churches today. But that is not the point, so I will avoid the controversy. The point is spiritual gifts are supernatural enablements given by the Spirit to believers to build up the body of Christ. And here the author of Hebrews says, such supernatural abilities that you did not have, that you received on the day of your salvation, certainly to include the so-called sign gifts, are proof of God Himself testifying to the veracity and faithfulness of the gospel. It is true. Just look at how He has gifted you. That's the point. couple of other quick thoughts before I close. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, these gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit as He wills, not as you will, but as He wills, agreeing with the author of Hebrews. Second, don't miss this. Notice the Trinity affirms the truth of the gospel. Notice The gospel was spoken and indeed brought by Jesus. It was testified as true by God the Father through these miraculous works and is proven today by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is so important. All the Trinity is involved in proving to you that the gospel is true. So why would you walk away?
That's his point. Christianity is true. Not necessarily because it works the way we want it to work, by giving us a pain and sorrow-free life. Some of you are in deep pain and sorrow right now. More, Christianity does not work by Him giving us all the answers to our prayers, giving us what we need and even what we want and making our lives healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That is not it. The gospel has already gloriously saved us from sin, purified our sins, redeemed us, reconciled us to the God of the universe through the finished sacrificial work of His Son. What more do we want? Well, I can think... All of this has been divinely testified to be true. And so, in the midst of the challenges and difficulties of life, brothers and sisters, listen carefully. We persevere. We don't become apathetic. We don't become indifferent. We don't wander. We don't drift. We don't fall away. We don't quit. We remain faithfully committed to the one who has remained faithfully committed to us. That is not to say that we do not and will not have challenges. We do and we will. That is not to say that we cannot pray about these challenges. We do and we will right now. It's one of the reasons that we stay connected to the church of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons we don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But we gather to encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. We encourage each other in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life. We need each other on this journey to heaven. So as I said at the beginning, we're going to end our time this morning praying for each other. Okay, we're going to pray. This is how we're going to do it. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the, uh, the elders and their wives to come and stand at the front. They are the, they are the shepherds of the church. They are here to shepherd you, to, to pray for you, to care for you. In a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to sing a couple of songs, and then we're we're going to we're going to sing. In fact, I'm going to ask you, just stand up. Let's just stand up. I'll ask the elders and their wives to come. I'll ask the worship team to go ahead and come. And, and I'm going to invite you to pray. Maybe you want to just stay right where you are and pray. That's okay. You can do that. Maybe you want to just grab the hand of the person next to you and say, will you pray with me? And, and, and they'll pray with you. That's okay. You can do that. But maybe you're facing a, a challenge or a difficulty in life right now that is beyond what you can bear. I know we have some here like that. And you need someone to pray for you. That's what they're here for. Shepherds, they want to care for you. They want to love you. They want to pray with and for you. And so in a moment, that we sing, if you have a need, you can come and they will pray with and, and for you. Maybe, again, you just want to sing. In fact, the very first song is a new song. It's a great song, but it's new. It's intentionally new. You may try to sing along if you'd like. Go ahead, you can do that. Or you may listen to some very awesome words that talks about a God of mercy. Don't you need mercy? And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to sing. And whatever your need is, we invite you to come. Father, I pray in Jesus' name 
that you would meet us in a very special way. We are the church. We are believers. We are followers of Christ. We come to you in the name of Jesus through his finished work as he is seated at your right hand right now interceding for us. We're going to pray. Father, we desperately need you to hear our prayers. And we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. Whatever your need is, I invite you to come.